kind of a bittersweet moment this morning. I never thought that this would be bittersweet at all. Um, the idea of not being here worshiping next week is bitter. I really don't know why, but, you know, this place has connected us to people. And I just want to, I, I want to share this with you this morning because I think it's an, uh, just a testimony to what God's done in us and through us uh, since we've been here. The, uh, this week, as I was at the building, there were some people that came around and there were some comments made um, about some things that were said while we were there doing our garage sale. You know, we did this big garage sale on the property and people came and they said, oh, well, we didn't even know that the Episcopal Church had closed. And that struck me when I heard that because everywhere Jesus went, he made it better. And I have heard over and over and over how much they are going to miss us not being in this building. Just the idea that we're here um, has made a difference for many of these teachers, knowing that God's word is proclaimed. And so uh, on top of that, you know, they have now they approach us constantly looking to see how we might help and how we might be a part of what they're doing. And honestly, I, I want us to continue that relationship even as we move from here. But bittersweet, you know, it's a sad day because I know there's some concern about how we will maintain these relationships, the, the closeness that we have with this community, uh, but sweet because there's going to be so many more things that God can use us for in ways that we can reach into Springfield and see a difference. And so I'm excited about that as well. But I'm glad you guys are here and I look forward to this last service. And so as let's just jump in. We, we've got really a lot to do today. But I'm going to try and keep it short, and that's probably the, I just made a mistake in telling you I was going to try and keep it short, because now if I go normal or regular, you guys will be like, come on, he said it was going to be short. But the reality is I know we've got a lot going on, and I want us to, to, to hear the word, and I don't want to downplay the importance of the word. Uh, I think that what needs to be said can be said pretty clearly and concisely. And so as we have worked through this series, it's been a call to worship in all of life, not just on Sunday mornings. Like what we've just done in most cases is, is the way that people define worship. They go to a worship service. And so if you sang the songs, if you thought of the words and considered the, the bigness and glory and majesty of God, then you worshiped along with us. And we had this corporate worship event. And that's great, but that's not all worship was ever intended to be. And so as God worked with his his people in the Old Testament, he set up for them festivals that were spaced throughout the year in such a way so that they were constantly being called back to a place where they recognized him. And so that, that it was it really forced them or put them in a place where they could not live life without being in a posture of worship and, and, and just recognizing his awesomeness and being in awe of him and recognizing their dependence on him and recognizing his provision for them. And so as we've done that, the things we've looked at so far in the Sabbath was the first festival that he gave them to observe is a weekly festival, a weekly time for them to set aside and rest in him, to really take a day off to the glory of God, to take take time off of work and set it aside and consecrate it, consecrate it, or, or um, set it aside specifically for observing what God had done. That's a, that's a day of worship. And so take a day off. In your life, take a day off and set it aside to come and worship with God's people and recognize His majesty and His beauty and His provision and, and just who He is. In the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as we studied the last two weeks, it's one festival 
But but it, it lasts for about a week, and and in that festival we get to see God. I mean, in the Passover we recognize and learn about who God is by what He did. A gracious God, a merciful God, a just and a righteous, and a God with wrath. We see God in His fullness in the work of the Passover. We see Him redeeming a people to Himself. But in the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, it it becomes an extension or a part of the Passover, and it gives the people a way to respond. And so they see God in the Passover. They recognize what He's done. And then in that week, the following week, they get an opportunity to respond to all that He's revealed to them as they are called to live as the people of God, a holy people, a people who live with, with moral implications and, and are called to be different than those around them. Well, today as we consider our third festival, the third of seven, we're going to look at the first fruits, the feast of the first fruits. And this, this festival or this, this celebration was given to, to call people to recognize confidence and gratitude, confidence in and gratitude for God and all that He had done. So we're just going to jump in, read the Scriptures, and see what they have to say. If you've got your Bible, Leviticus 23, we'll start reading in verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is God's Word, I mean, He is the one bringing them to this festival. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb a year old without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma, and the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Now I want to just real quickly kind of compare what we're seeing here in the Feast of the, the first fruits with the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were given to the Israelites before they were even God's people. While they were still in Egypt, before they stood at the base of the mountain and said, and God said, you're going to be my people. And they say, we want you to be our God and we're going to be your people. And they enter into a covenant with him. Before that ever happened, God redeemed them Through the Passover, he brought them out of slavery. He freed them from the Egyptians. And he says, these are the the things that you're going to do. You're going to observe the Passover, and you're going to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he gave them those celebrations before they ever even left Egypt and said, you're going to celebrate them for as long as you're a people. Well, here, God is giving them a different perspective or a different thing to focus on. He is calling them to think about what's going to happen When they get to the place he's promised them. God had promised Abraham 400 years earlier, or even a little longer than that, he had promised Abraham, when you you are, um, I'm going to give you a family and I'm going to give you offspring, and it's going to be as many as the sands, and I'm going to give you a land. And And Abraham, he never saw it. But this was the fulfillment of the promise. And God says, when you come into this land that I've promised you, you're going to observe this festival. You're going to 
pay attention to this. Now, it kind of makes sense that they didn't need to observe it until they got to the, to the land that he'd promised them because as they walked in the desert, they weren't planting crops. They didn't stay anywhere long enough to plant and graze crops. I mean, it wouldn't have made sense for him to say, every year at the harvest, I want you to bring me a sheaf of your harvest, the first fruits of your harvest, because they weren't harvesting anything. They walked outside and they picked up manna, you know, and, and, and God provided for them in every way. So there was no need for them to observe this then. But the very first year that they would be in this land, the very first harvest that they would find or that they would that they would have in this promised land, they were to celebrate it by bringing the first fruits to God. Now, the first fruits are really a special thing. It's really considered to be the best of or those that are preeminent among all of the rest of the harvest. And so it's, it's almost like saying, here, this is the first of what we got, and it's the best of what we got, and we want you to have it. So they were consecrating this or setting it aside for God, and that's what he was calling them to do. He's saying, I don't want you to have your best. I deserve your best. Bring it to me. He's a God who can say that and expect it to happen. But that's what they were to do. And from the very first year, that's what they began to do. Now, it's a little tricky to see where in the year this fell. So I've got, brought you back my little calendar that I showed you last week um, just to help you guys kind of see it. And I've changed the days around just a little bit to kind of work it out so that you'll see it and we'll be able to bring some application here in a little bit. But remember, in the Jewish calendar, day begins at sunset. A day begins at sunset. So rather than Monday morning being the day beginning, the beginning of the day, it would be Monday evening would really be like Tuesday, the beginning of Tuesday. And so sunset to sunset is the way the day works. So here they are in the midst of everything, and they've been told to observe the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then he says on the Sabbath, or on the day after the Sabbath, you're to do this. And what that does is if you look in the context, and you could see it if you open your Bibles and you look back at the context, you can see that the Sabbath God's referring to is the very first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, if you remember from last week, that could actually fall on any day of the week, but it was called a Sabbath. It was a high and holy Sabbath day because God had set it aside. It was a special day that could have fallen in the middle of the week in which they were told to cease their work, to not do anything that was normal work. And so that was a special Sabbath. And so this day fell on the 16th. So here they have the Passover the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins, and immediately on the 16th, the first day after the Sabbath that starts the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were to celebrate the Feast of First Fruits. And so they had this whole big celebration or this whole big holiday week that they celebrated. Now, they're, I'm making a distinction. There's two different distinct holidays here. There's the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread, and there is the Feast of First Fruits. They're not the same. And the reason is, is because they commemorate two totally different things. It would be like if we took Christmas and New Year's, you know, in Christmas and New Year's, they've kind of gotten blended together with a week-long holiday for a lot of people. When I was still working in aviation, we knew that nothing happened that week. I'm sure that many of you know the same thing in your industries. Nothing happens the week between New, New Year's and Christmas. It's not that there's not people working, and it's not that there's not people trying to produce, but the reality is, is the levels of production and the levels of, of business, it just almost ceases between those two holidays. But no one in their right mind says it's the same holiday, right? It's two distinct holidays celebrating two distinct things. The Passover, looking at what God did, and the Feast of First Fruits, looking at what God does 
and what he will continue to do. Two totally different perspectives, two totally different distinct holidays. And I know you're sitting there thinking, why does this matter? Hang on, you'll see. So here's what would happen. <clears throat> and, and, and there's some discussion about this, but Josephus recorded this, and I, I think it's pretty, pretty, it's okay for you guys to hear this and, and hang on to it. Here's what would happen. Before sunset would happen, before sunset would occur, on the evening, or just before sunset, on the 15th, the priests or the messengers of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish council, they'd run out to the fields and they'd be there in preparation for sunset because at sunset they would change from the first day of Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Feast of First Fruits. And they'd stand there in the field. And once the sun set, they would go into this little this little tradition that they had. And this is what they would do. Someone in the field would say, is the sun set? And the people that were there would say, yes. And they would say, with this, with this sickle, shall I reap? And they would all answer, yes. And then they would say, in this basket, shall I put it? And they would all answer, yes. And if it happened to be that this day was really on a Sabbath, they would, they would add one question, on this Sabbath, shall I do it? And they would answer, yes. And they would go through this three times. This was their tradition. They would go through it three times. They would bring in the first sheaf. They would, they would cut the barley off at the, at the base. They would bind it together in a, in a sheaf of barley. And they would bring it to the priest. And the priest would prepare it. And then he'd stand in the temple and he'd wave it before the altar. Nobody really knows what this looks like. I mean, it could have been, he could have taken it apart and took it in two hands and done like that. He could have done like the Pentecostals do with their handkerchiefs and, and run around and dance and swung it around. We, we don't really know what he did. Or we, we don't really know what it looked like. He could have been to the four corners of the compass, you know, something like that. But the reality is he took it and he waved it before God. And this was an act to consecrate. It was an act to set aside the harvest as special and holy. It was an act in which it was, it was given to demonstrate their gratitude and thankfulness for what God had done. And this happened every year, the same time of the year. In this, we learn that the first fruits represent all of the harvest. You see, they didn't have to harvest all of the fields and come and take them and lay them in the temple and say, God, please make these holy. They took the first fruits. They brought it to the temple. And the priest brought it and presented it before God, waved it before God, and God consecrated the whole harvest. Everything in the fields was made holy. It was demonstrating that they were not just thankful for the sheaf of the first fruits, but they were thankful for all of it. That, that not just the first fruits were God's provision, but the whole harvest was God's provision. And so the entire harvest was represented in this one sheaf of barley. In the first fruits, we recognize that it calls attention to God's generosity and the people's gratitude. You see, what began to happen in these ceremonies was not just revealing God, but it was about letting people see how they're to respond to a holy God. And so in this harvest, in this festival, they recognize that God has been generous to them. He's given them a, a whole harvest. And all he's asking is that they set, a, set aside just one small portion, and he is being generous to give them all that they need. And he's calling them to re respond in gratitude, to be thankful for who he is and what he's done. And in the first fruits, it calls attention to God's faithfulness and his people's confidence. And God, in this passage, we see God before their first harvest ever happened. 
God is promising them a harvest. And then he's saying, you will do this for all generations. This is something you will do from now until you're no longer a people. You're always to do this. That is God promising, I am going to bring you a harvest always. That's beautiful. Because God is faithful. And if you know much about the history of the Israelite people, they obviously weren't. They were stiff-necked. They were constantly rebelling. In fact, there were many times where they were even taken. Their land was basically taken away. God allowed them to be brought back into slavery because they were rebellious and they wouldn't follow Him and they wouldn't listen to Him. But God was always faithful. And He was always bringing a harvest regardless of what they were doing. But it challenged them. It brought them to a place in recognizing His faithfulness that they are to react in confidence. It's another word for trust. Another word for faith. Another word for for believing something so intently that you actually act on it. I'm confident that these chairs aren't going to dump any of you out in the ground. So please sit back and relax. Enjoy the message. If I wasn't confident, I might tell you, don't sit in that. In fact, we had a stool out in the tables in the hallway that was, the legs were falling apart. Don't sit there. We wouldn't let anybody sit down. In fact, we sent it to be fixed because we didn't have any confidence in it. You see, the reality is God is faithful and He knows He will always follow through on what He's called and always uh, on what He's promised. And He calls us to live in confidence. He calls His people to live in confidence. So we see that the first fruits represents the harvest. It teaches us about God's generosity. It teaches us to to respond to Him with gratitude. In fact, let me just let me just bring this to your attention. I don't I don't know. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you don't. Maybe you haven't. But in Romans one, God is God is instructing Paul to write, and He says the wrath of God is being Revealed against all mankind. God has made Himself known. I'm, I don't, it's not going to be word for word. This is kind of the Seth, the English Seth version. God has made Himself known. And so man's going to stand without excuse. Because God has revealed Himself, yet they did not honor God or give Him gratitude as He was due. You see, they didn't live gratefully. People ignored all that God had done and they didn't demonstrate thankfulness. This festival was designed to draw these people to being thankful. This festival was designed to demonstrate God's faithfulness and their responsibility to act and live in confidence. You see, the first fruits reminded God's people that they were to, that, that they could see God at work every day. Up until this time, they had seen God act in such big ways. I mean, they they had lived in slavery for 430 years, and they had pleaded and prayed for God to act. And when God acted, He led them out of Egypt with great power. And not only did He bring great power against the Egyptians, but as they left, He demonstrated great power on their behalf. They crossed a sea on dry ground. And that's big. I've never gone to any ocean and been able to step into it and see the waters divide. 
But God did that. God did that. And then as, as they got across and the Egyptians are chasing them, he lets it go and he protects his people and it kills all the Egyptians. In the desert, they were eating food that they didn't raise. They were wearing clothes that they didn't have to mend. They were wearing shoes that never wore out. I don't know if you've spent any time in a desert, but it's harsh. It's, it's, our, our, our stuff wears out fast there. I, I spent some time in the desert as I was doing some training in the, in the military. And my, and my shoes, they cooked every day. I could feel the heat through the ground. And it was in Death Valley. And it was so stinking hot. It was miserable. And I could feel my feet cooking every day. Working on the ground in the desert. The sand was eating up my BDUs. I was constantly finding holes where holes hadn't been. It's just a reality. But He provided for them. They saw God working in big ways, in supernatural ways. Well, it's easy to forget that God works in everything. Every day. You see, the reality is, is that everything He does is supernatural. Everything He does is, is mind-boggling. But we get so numb just to the everyday. They got numb to the everyday. I mean, in just a few days, God had, God had led them out of Egypt. Led them to the base of the mountain. They had seen the smoke and the fire and the lightning at the top of the mountain. And they had recognized the power of God. And because Moses seemed to be taking a long time, they brought their gold to Aaron and said, make us a God that we can worship. And see, they were losing sight that the God who created with supernatural power is the God who works every day with supernatural power. You see, God was working through them. It's not like they could sit back and not work for the harvest. They certainly were called to go into the fields and plant the seed. They certainly were called to go into the fields. <clears throat> Excuse me. They certainly were called to go into the fields and tend their crops. But God is the one who brought the harvest. God was the one responsible to know, to, to see that the seed became a plant and the plant produced its fruit. You see, God's the one that does that work. They got to see God at work every day. And as they offered these first fruits, they had to recognize that this supernatural power was providing for them in their everyday life. So the Feast of First Fruits became a, a very special ceremony, a very special time. And they would bring these first fruits in. And they bring them to the priest. He would wave them before the Lord. And then they would offer additional sacrifices on top of what they were already doing. They, there were daily sacrifices required for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then they would take a time for the Feast of First Fruits. And they would set aside time to, to specifically observe these things. And the reality is, is that this Feast of First Fruits has great implication even for us today. Even today. Because Jesus is our first fruits. Jesus is our first fruits. And you're like, well, what do you mean by that? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 19 through 23. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people, we are of all people most to be pitied. If God, 
sent Christ and he died on the cross and all he did was die on the cross and that was it. We're to be pitied among all people. It's like more people, everyone should feel sorry for us if this is all we have. If all we have is death, we should be pitied among above all people. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. <clears throat> for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Jesus is our firstfruits. He is the fulfillment of this festival. Jesus ate the Passover meal. <clears throat> Remember, it starts at sunset. The sunset happens. Jesus is with his apostles in the upper room eating the Passover meal. He goes out from there. He leads them into the garden before the Passover is over. And before that night is even over, he is arrested in the garden. He's brought and his trial begins. His trial extends into the morning. They bring him before uh, the before the, the the Roman leaders. They they put him on trial and they try to get him crucified. Finally, Pilate is standing there without any other option, and he says, "Fine, we'll crucify him." Before the Passover was over, our Passover lamb was hung on a cross and left to die. His blood. Remember this. His blood is from two weeks ago. His blood is what now covers us and allows God to pass over us or call us righteous. His blood cleanses us. His blood allows us to enter into God's redemption. And His body, His body broken, but perfect. He was the unleavened bread. He was that which was not of this world. He was perfect and without sin. He hung there and He, and he died. He gave up His Spirit, and it, because the next day was a special day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Sabbath, that high holy day, the Jews came to Pilate and they said, hey, we've got, it. we've got to get these guys off the cross. They can't be on the cross tomorrow. And so, so Pilate sends word to his, to his guards and he says, break their legs, get them, get them off the cross. And so to kill them faster, they broke the legs of the people on the cross because they would hang there and they wouldn't be able to lift themselves up to breathe. And so they would asphyxiate faster. But when they came to Christ, they found Him already dead. Our Passover lamb, our unleavened bread. They found Him dead. So they didn't break His legs. They pierced His side with a spear and blood and water flowed, demonstrating that He was dead. Before the Passover was done, they had taken Him off of the cross and two of His followers that had been following Him secretly, Joseph of Arimathea, and uh, Nicodemus, no, yes, sorry, <laughs> drew a blank. Nicodemus, come and, and they take his body from the cross and they prepare it for burial and they bring him and they put him in Joseph of Arimathea's grave. Before the Passover is over, Jesus Christ is in the ground. Our Passover lamb slaughtered for our sin so that God might pass over us in judgment, so that God might call us his unleavened people, His perfect, righteous people. And the, the, the day ends at sunset. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. 
And, and the, Jewish, the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin, they come to Pilate and they're like, hey, he, he said that he was going to raise in three days. We need to put a guard on the tomb. Because what he started will be worse if they come in and steal his body and take it so that it looks like he's risen from the grave. And so on that high and holy Sabbath day, they go and they conspire to ensure that Jesus Christ's body couldn't be removed from the grave. And on that that Sabbath day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, beginning at sunset and working all the way through sunset, his people are observing this high and holy day, this Sabbath day. And they're not going to the, to the tomb and they're not looking to preserve his body. They are observing their tradition. And so night falls on that day, that first day of Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it turns to the Feast of First Fruits at sunset. And of course, it's sunset, it's getting dark, there's no way, that they, they, it's not like they travel into cemeteries at night with no lights, they didn't have flashlights, they couldn't grab a mag light off the wall, they, couldn't, they didn't have their little LEDs on their fingers that they could point at things and shine stuff, they didn't have that. And so it's night, but as soon as the sun rises, even before the sun rises, the women that had watched Jesus die on the cross on that morning of that feast of first fruits, they, they leave their houses excited in one way to prepare his body, looking to, looking to uh, memorialize and, and honor the man who had died. But also curious, how in the world are we going to get into the, to the tomb? Who's going to roll the stone away? They get there on that morning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the tomb was empty because Jesus, our first fruits, had risen. Because the tomb was empty, he wasn't there. He was no longer al- among the dead, but he had risen and was alive. And now Paul says, Jesus is our first fruits. Through Adam all men die. Through Christ all can live. You see, He is our first fruit. He is the one that represents us all. It's because of Christ's resurrection that you and I have the hope of resurrection. It's because of Christ's work on the cross that we are forgiven, but it's because of His resurrection that we can count on life. Remember, in the first fruits, he, the, the first sheaf, the sheaf of first fruits represents the whole harvest. So today, brothers and sisters, if you are in Jesus Christ, you have this hope because God has accepted him first among us all. And he has consecrated the whole harvest, which is every believer, which is everyone who belongs to the Lord. That last verse, at his coming, all who belong to Christ will find themselves in the midst of this harvest because Jesus Christ is our first fruit. He is risen from the dead and he is alive. You see, in Christ, the generosity of God it's revealed. It's shown to us. In Christ, the generosity of God is shown to us. And I can't imagine any better response than gratitude. He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believed in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Parents and people who want to be parents, could you imagine this sacrifice. Could you, could you imagine giving up the, the only child you had that people could be saved? 
And see, we recognize the, the beauty of the gift. We recognize the level of generosity because the level of sacrifice, our God, the God who didn't have to suffer, the God who created all things, and the God who says how things are going to be, the God who rules sovereignly, that God suffered. He gave of Himself and He hurt and He suffered. And that's how we know just how generous an act this was. Because He gave so high and so great. He suffered. Can we do anything but be thankful? I mean, there's plenty of things to be thankful for, right? I mean, we can be thankful for all kinds of things. The air we breathe, the world we live in, the provisions that we have. The things we find. Yeah, there's plenty to be thankful for. But let me ask you, isn't Christ enough? Isn't He enough? If you have nothing else, if He takes it all away, if nothing is given to you except Christ, isn't that enough? He has given you His all. His only begotten Son. Isn't He enough? Why do we so desperately cling to things of this world? Why do we so desperately long for them? When we can be satisfied and grateful for our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is enough. In Christ, we see the faithfulness of God. We see Him providing and finishing the work He said He's going to do. In the very beginning... At the fall, when God is giving the curse, He's also promising that there will be redemption. He's promising that I am going to do something in such a way that, that, that there will be a Redeemer. And He selects a people. And from that people, He brings a Savior who is the first fruits. In Romans, Paul teaches us that, that in giving Jesus, God held nothing back. And today, you and I as believers, we have no reason to worry because what won't He do if He gave us Christ? In Philippians, He, he tells us, Paul tells us that, that the work that He began in Christ, He will bring to a completion the work He's doing in you. The way He's changing you, He will complete but not just that work. The work He's doing in all the world. You see, it's not just about you. It's about His people. All that He's doing in the world, in His people, in creation, as He moves from the fall through redemption, He is moving towards restoration. You can take this to the bank. You don't need a plan B. Jesus is our first fruit. And He has been accepted by God. And because God has accepted this offering of the first fruit, we can now be confident in this life we live. We have no reason to doubt. Oh, we'll doubt. Don't get me wrong. We'll doubt. We're going to have doubt. Don't, don't beat yourself up. You're not the only one. But when you do, remind yourself of the cross. Remind yourself of the resurrection. You see, Jesus isn't dead in a grave anymore. If He had been, we'd be pitied over all people. But He's alive. He's risen from the grave. Our first fruit. Not just making Himself acceptable to God, 
but making all of his people acceptable to God. See, in Christ, in Christ, we see what God has done. In fact, today we're going to observe communion. We do it every Sunday. And, and just as we did last week, I'm going to call you to remember the blood shed that, calls, that brings you into redemption, the unleavened bread that demonstrates our call to holiness. Then we, we see what Christ or what God has done in Christ. But we recognize also what God is doing. God is at work every day bringing about redemption, bringing about sanctification in His people, making His people His own. And we have a hope for what God will do. Not a wishful thinking that is like much of the world, but a confident expectation that what He says is going to happen will happen. And so remember, Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And look at how He's applied that to your life. Do you believe in Him? Do you walk with Him? Do you know Him? That's God's work. You are a product of the God of creation. You have a knowledge that's brought you into life because God has enabled you to see the truth. He's opened your eyes. He's brought you from death to life. Look at how He's applied His work of redemption. Let me, let me ask you, let me challenge you to pay attention to the circumstances of your life. Every paycheck you get, every, every, every opportunity for blessing you find, every struggle you face, believe it or not, is an act of God's grace on your behalf. Here's the truth. Some grace feels really good. You know, you get a raise at work, you recognize God's grace. Somebody pats you on the back and tells you what a great job you did, and you get to get to see the results and the fruits of your efforts. That feels good. That's an act of God's grace. When you find yourself suffering and struggling, we're called to recognize all difficulty as discipline from a loving Father. That is an act of God's grace. Have you, been, have you ever been asked the question, I know that some of you have because I know that we've done it in community groups. Have you ever been asked the question, how are you seeing God's grace in your life today? Let me encourage you. At the end of every day, before you go to sleep, ask yourself, how have I experienced God's grace because in Christ we recognize that He's not just at work in the forever. He's at work in the everyday. He's not just concerned about your eternal rest. He's concerned about your current rest. He's concerned about your current perspectives. He's concerned about your protection and your provision. He's concerned about your state, your maturity. He's concerned about who you are in Him. How are you experiencing God's grace and if you ever come to a place where you stumble, think and remember the cross and the resurrection. You can't go wrong there. But I think if you discipline yourself to begin to look for God's grace, you will see God's grace. And I want to encourage you to look forward to the day when the harvest will be brought in. 
when all of the harvest will be brought in and those who belong to Christ will be brought into his presence and they will enjoy eternal life with him forever. Let me encourage you to consider that with a confident expectation. There is no plan B. This is it. And let me close with just one last thought. As you consider these things, you have an opportunity to respond to God. The truth is this, is that God will be, He will be glorified in all people. There will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, regardless of what they did in this life. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Today, you and I have a special opportunity because we get to proactively respond. We get to respond now based on the truth we've seen, based on the will that God has given us to respond in worship. We get to glorify God because we see what He's done and now we want to see Him glorified. We get to glorify God because He has demonstrated His work in our everyday. And we can be grateful. We get to glorify God because we can trust Him to finish the work He started. And we can walk confidently in that hope. Every head bowed and every eye closed. And let's just consider the work of God. Think about what He's done. Now, I don't, I don't know what troubles you come with today. I, I don't know what struggles you face. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it is for your good. And I know it's difficult to thank God for the struggles. But you can thank Him that He's disciplining you. That He's shaping your life. Uh, maybe you received some great news this week. Maybe you got up and you told all your friends about some great thing that's happened to you. And you're not stopped to thank God for His grace in your everyday walk. Maybe you live with such a short-sighted perspective that you forget that there's a day coming that will be so much better. Maybe, maybe you're, you're tied to this world in ways that you just need to let go and think about the day that will come when Christ returns. The trumpet sounds. He comes in and He calls His people to be in His presence. The day that you, with your own eyes, will see your Creator, your Savior. See, we don't need this world. We don't belong to this world. We're aliens and strangers. We have a home. Think about that day. Do you walk in confidence that that day is coming? Do you walk in confidence that God's going to finish the work He's done? Father, you're good and you're gracious. We thank you for that. We love you for it. God, I know that in, in this room there's, there's all kinds of mixed up things going on. I know that there's people with different perspectives, different things happening in their life. But I know that you're a big enough God to know them all. That you're a big enough and powerful enough God to work in them all. That you're, that you're great enough to be in control of them all, God. I pray that you would work and that you would send your spirit upon us. Bring conviction as necessary. Bring, bring excitement and joy and exuberance. God, I know that this, this festival of first fruits is to be one of excitement and joy and gratitude 
So God, give us the, the desire to celebrate you with all of our life, with our words, our actions, our provisions, God. Give us a, a desire to, to give you our life and hold nothing back that we might celebrate you and all the work you've done, all the work that you're doing and all that you still have left to do. God, thank you for letting us choose to, to worship you now as you've revealed us this truth. Uh, thank you for giving us this opportunity to respond with our hearts and to love you with our beings. May you be honored by our time together today and by the time that we spend the rest of this week and the weeks to come. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.